0: great to be here this morning and be able to worship God. And we're thankful for those who are here and especially those of you who are visiting. I want to ask you this morning, um, what is a, a man and what is a woman? What does it mean to be a man and a woman? And how does the Bible define being a man or being a woman? Well, that's not what we're talking about this morning. But if you'll come to this church building between March, uh, February the 27th and March the 1st, we're having a seminar during that weekend and those are some of the subjects that are going to be covered. Come and be part of our Rise Spiritual Growth Seminar if you're not planning already. And please take a look at the, um, at the flyers that are on the, uh, in the back. And if you have any questions or um, anything like that, please let one of us know so we can try and answer them. I invite your attention as we begin this morning to Luke 9, verse 22. Here's what the passage says. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. You may remember that as we study the book of Luke, whenever we come upon the word must in that book, that that word indicates conformity to a divine plan or decree. So in other words, when Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and be raised on the third day, what he's saying is it has to be this way. And it can be no other way at all. It must be so. So why was it necessary for Jesus to suffer and to die and to be resurrected? Last week we talked about the first of those Why was it necessary for Jesus to die? Because death was necessary because a sacrificial lamb was needed. Remember in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. But then just a few verses later in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 4, the Bible tells us that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, so all of the animals who were sacrificed under the Old Testament law, all of the blood that was shed, it wasn't good enough. It was only a temporary solution to an eternal problem. And so we're not, uh, God, man rather needed not just any lamb, man needed the lamb. And that's why John said in John 1 and verse number 29, "...behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." It was necessary for Jesus to die because a sacrificial lamb was needed in order to deal with the problem of sin. But that's not the only thing Jesus says in that passage, Luke 9.22. Look at it again. The Son of Man must, it is necessary, Jesus says, that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Not only was death necessary, not only did it have to be that way, but resurrection was necessary as well because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, all is lost. The difference between a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, and the differ- and uh, the lamb of God is that only one lived again. The Bible tells us in Romans 4, verse number 25, that without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no justification. Paul says he was raised because of our justification. In Acts 24, and verse 15, the Bible tells us that without the resurrection of Christ, there is no hope. Paul said, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, there is no point. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 and 15, Paul said, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not raise Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no justification, there is no hope, and there is no point or meaning for anything that we're doing right now in this building or even in our life. Because life beyond the grave, that's not an option. But the Bible tells us that he is risen. As was read for us a moment ago, on the third day, the earth shook and an angel from heaven rolled away the stone and the risen Lord came forth. And we have hope because of it. So this morning, we want to focus our attention on the risen Lamb. We want to do that by looking at two different things. We want to consider, first of all, a section of Scripture in the book of Acts, chapter 2, that will elaborate for us upon the resurrection of Christ. And then second, we want to draw some implications that follow naturally from the fact of His resurrection. And as we do so, there are three things that are going to come to our attention. There is, number one, the fact of his resurrection. And then, number two, the implications of his resurrection. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, and I want us to notice together, Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and following, as we talk about the fact of his resurrection. Just to set the scene. Remember that when we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, we're looking at the events that happen on the day of Pentecost. It's the time of year in which Jews from all over the world will travel to the city of Jerusalem, and they will do so in order to observe the Feast of Pentecost. And it is on this day that after Jesus having commanded the apostles to go and wait in Jerusalem until they would be given power from on high, Luke chapter 24, verse 42 and following, it is on this day that while the twelve are gathered in an upper room, the Holy Spirit will come upon them and they will begin to speak in other tongues, that is, languages never before uh, having never before studied them. And to this large mass of people, Jews, that are gathered from all over the world, Peter and the other eleven will stand up and will preach for the first time the gospel Of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the middle of Peter's sermon, we find ourselves beginning in verse number 22. And I want us to notice first in Acts 2, verse number 22, that Jesus is the approved Messiah. Look at verse 22. Peter said, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. We're talking about the fact that Jesus is the approved Messiah, and so I want you to notice in the middle of the verse that Peter says about Christ that he was attested by God to be the Son of God. And the word attested literally means to be authenticated or to be approved or to be shown to be genuine. And how is it that Peter says God showed the approval or the genuineness or the authenticity of Christ? Peter says he did it by his signs and by his miracles and by his wonders. Read John chapter 3 and verse number 2. The ruler came to Jesus by night and said, We know that you're a teacher that's come from God because no man can do the things that you do unless God be with him. Read John chapter 5 and verse number 36. The people recognized that Jesus was from God because they noticed his signs and they noticed his miracles and they were amazed by it. And even Jesus himself in John 6 and verse number 14 told the people, The works that I do, they testify of me. Jesus is the authenticated Messiah. He has been proven to be genuine by the miracles that he performed, which testified to his deity. But that's not the only thing the verse says. Look at the very end. At the end of Acts 2, verse 22, Peter says, "...as you yourselves also know." Now, what's interesting about Peter saying, "...you yourselves also know," is that if you'll go back and look at verse number 9, and then again at verse number 14... There is no question that some of the people who are gathered here listening to Peter preach this sermon, these are some of the same people who saw Jesus perform miracles. They saw them with their own eyes. These are the same people who listened as Jesus preached and as he taught. These are the same people, no doubt, some of whom surely were in the crowd just a few days before as they gathered before Pilate and they said, crucify him. And now, these people are also going to learn that if they're going to be right with God and go to heaven, it's going to be through him. Peter says God authenticated, he approved him. And he says, You know it to be true. There is no denying that Christ is exactly who he said he was. He is approved. But then look at verse 23. Not only is Jesus the approved Messiah, he is also the crucified Messiah. The crucifixion is no accident of of ancient history. The apostle Peter said, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and you have crucified him and you have put him to death. When Peter talks about the um, determined purpose of God, he's talking about God's foreknowledge. He's talking about God's predetermined plan. Remember Luke 9 and verse 22. Not the Son of Man should, not the Son of Man might, but the Son of Man must suffer and must be betrayed and must be killed and must be resurrected. It had to happen because that's the only way that the problem of sin could be adequately handled. And so God, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 9 to 11, God describes this plan that he has from eternity as his eternal purpose. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 7, the apostle Paul talks about the information that God reveals to us through his spirit. And he says that it is the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages to our glory. He said if men would have known that wisdom, they never would have crucified the Son of God. But God reveals his mind, God reveals his will as he sees fit. Acts three and verse eighteen, Acts fifteen and verse eighteen, and a number of passages, the Bible will tell us that when Jesus hung on the cross, it wasn't because of some it wasn't because of some accident. It meant to ha- it was supposed to happen. He is the crucified Messiah. But notice in the second part of this verse, Peter not only talks about the plan or the will of God, but he talks about the free will of lawless men. Go back in your Bible and read about the uh, death of Christ. Read about the trial that he had before the council, and about being taken before Pilate and to Herod, and then back to Pilate, and about how Pilate knew that he was really innocent, but um, the people insisted on him being put to death. We recognize that when Jesus stood before the council, that Jewish law was violated by that trial. And we also know that it was practically unheard of for Jews to deliver a fellow Jew to the Romans for punishment. There are two passages in Matthew chapter 27, verse 15 and verse number 25, I think, that are very telling and help to give some, uh, an image to what Peter means when he says, you did this by lawless hands. In verse 15 of Matthew 27, the Bible tells us that Pilate knew that the Jews had delivered Jesus to die because of envy. And then in verse number 25, the Bible says that the Jewish people, they cried out to Pilate and they said this, His blood be on our hands and the hand of our children. Jesus is the crucified Messiah. It is according to the term and counsel and foreknowledge of God. But that plan that God had from eternity also included the free will of lawless men who because of their envy and their spite and their jealousy and their hatred, because they simply couldn't handle who he was and couldn't handle his message, they rejected him and they had him crucified. But that wasn't the end. Look at Acts 2, verse 24 to 32. Now, in Acts 2, verse 24 to 32, Jesus is the risen Messiah. He is the approved Messiah in verse 22. He is the... Excuse me, he is the crucified Messiah in verse 23, but he's the resurrected Messiah in verse 24 to 32. Listen to what, uh, what Peter says. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, Peter said, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him of the fruit of his own body according to the flesh he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne he seeing this uh, foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses Now there are two things that Peter does in this section First of all, there is an appeal to prophecy in verse 25 through 28. Peter is quoting from Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, which keys us into the fact that David, through the eyes of prophecy, the pen of prophecy, really, what he wrote in that psalm, he wasn't talking about himself. But rather, he was talking about the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who would be sacrificed and then who would be resurrected. So Peter appeals to prophecy, and this isn't the only time in the Bible where we read about an appeal to prophecy in order to prove that the resurrection of Christ should never have been a surprise. In Luke 24, in verse 45 and 46, the Bible says that Jesus opened up the minds of the apostles and that he, or the disciples, and that he expanded to them about all things written of him from the law and from the Psalms and from the prophets. And he goes on and he says that it was written that the Son of Man should, be, uh, should suffer and should die and should be resurrected on the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name unto all nations beginning at Jerusalem according to Scripture, he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 4, Paul says the same thing. So those Jews who just days before were shouting crucify him, who were longing for his death, now they're learning that, listen, his death and his burial and his resurrection, it should never have been a surprise because they had had in their possession the will of God for a number of years and over and over again the scripture says the lamb is coming, the lamb will be slain, and the lamb will live again. The second thing that Peter does in this section, verse 25 and following, is that he makes an application. He says, Men and brethren, let me speak to you freely of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us to this day. It's almost as if Peter was pointing at the sepulchre at their moment and saying, Look, David talked about someone living again after he had died, but it wasn't him because his body's right there. You see his tomb, we see it every day. So if he wasn't talking about himself, then of whom was he speaking? He then harkens our minds again back to prophecy in verse 30 and 31 when he talks about the fact that being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He's pointing us back to the events of 2 Samuel chapter 7 when David attempted to build a house for God and God said through the prophet, David, you won't build me a house, I'll build you a house. And I'll raise up through your seed one who will sit on your throne. And he'll occupy that throne forever. He wasn't talking about Solomon. He wasn't talking about Rehoboam. He wasn't talking about any other physical king. He was talking about Jesus Christ. And so Peter brings it all together in verse number 32. David cannot be talking about himself. David is talking about the Lamb of God. And this Jesus, God has raised up, of whom we are all witnesses. There can be no doubt when we study Acts 2 verse 22 and following of the fact of the resurrection of Christ. And this is only one small section of scripture throughout the pages of God's word where the Bible will tell us over and over and over again, He lives. Now let's talk about some implications of that resurrection. First and foremost, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an evidence of His deity. A number of times Jesus predicted his resurrection like our passage that we began with, Luke 9 and verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer and must die and must be rejected and must raise from the dead on the third day. Listen, if Jesus is still in the grave, then Christianity is a hoax and Jesus is a liar. But the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1 and verse number 4 that God, that Jesus rather, has been proven to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that passage that we looked at just a few moments ago in verse 14 through 16, the Apostle Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead and evidently there were some in Corinth who doubted whether there was such a thing. And Paul says, listen, think about the logic of your argument. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then that means Jesus is still dead. And if Jesus is still dead, your faith is useless because he is a liar and because Christianity is a hoax and because it has no grounding or footing whatsoever to stand upon. All of the claims of Christianity and all of those who sacrifice their lives in service to the cross, all of those things are based upon the reality of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Jesus. The resurrection testifies to the fact that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Second, the second second implication of the resurrection of Christ is that our sins, they can be forgiven. Do you remember in this sermon that we're looking at in Acts chapter 2, just a few verses later, the Bible will say that they were pricked in the heart and they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If Jesus doesn't raise, then there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no hope beyond the grave. There is no way in which man can stand right before his God. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 in verse number 7 salvation is preached in his name. And in Acts chapter 13 in verse number 38 the apostle Paul after uh, having uh, attempted to speak to the Jews uh, made this statement. Therefore let it be known to you brethren that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things by w- from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The fact that Jesus lives means that if I'm willing to obey the gospel, I can be washed in his blood, and all of my sins, no matter how grave they may be, they can all be washed away and forgotten, and I can raise to walk in newness of life as a new creation. That's an implication of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Here's the third The third implication of the resurrection of the Lord is that the kingdom of God is ruled by a risen and by a living king. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 18 that Jesus is the head of his body. And the Bible also tells us that in Ephesians 1 verse 22 and 23 that the body is the church. And so the Bible will tell us that when we talk about the body and we talk about the church and we talk about the kingdom, we're all talking about the the same thing. But the Bible tells us that that Christ Jesus is the head and he has the authority and he sits as king on his throne and he rules his kingdom. Let me ask you a question. Of all of the religious bodies that exist in this world that have been created throughout human history, what is it that Jesus has that's different than the people who established all of those bodies? The difference is that when they died, they stayed that way. But when Jesus died, he didn't. Jesus is the only one who's qualified to build a kingdom, the only one who's qualified to establish a church, and the reason why is because he's the only one to die and be resurrected. Jesus is the only one qualified because Jesus is the Messiah of prophecy. He is the one of whom it was said, Luke 9, the Son of Man must suffer and die and be resurrected on the third day. That was talking about Christ. It wasn't talking about anybody else. And so he is the only one who has the right to be king over the kingdom that he has established. Number four, the fourth implication of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, of course, that death is not the end. I turn your I invite your attention again to First Corinthians chapter fifteen, which we've looked at or at least referenced a couple of times already, but I want you to notice two verses now that we haven't noted yet before. In 1 Corinthians fifteen and verse twenty, Paul says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And in verse twenty three he says, But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after though, and afterward those who are Christ that is coming. When the Bible talks about the first fruits, it's talking about, of course, that uh, first uh, bit of the crop that is given. And it's given sort of as a pledge or a promise of what's to come later. And so when the Bible says that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the point that he's making is that because Jesus resurrected from the dead, because he raised from the dead, so we will as well. A pledge, a promise of what's to come, if you will. And this is the emphasis of this chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus has raised from the dead. So there is hope after. The, uh, there is hope beyond the grave. Death is not the end. Paul will talk about the spiritual body that we'll be raised with in verse 35 and following. He'll talk about our final victory in verse 50 and following. And the fact that when this corruptible is put on immortal. Uh, Incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, so should be brought to pass the saying that has been written death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? And O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. An implication of the death of Christ Jesus is that death is not the end. Luke 9 verse 22, Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. When we read the word must, we're talking about something that had to happen. It was in accordance with a predetermined plan. And Jesus says, first of all, I must be the sacrificial lamb. I must die because without my death, there is no forgiveness. But he also says that he must resurrect. And the reason is because without the resurrection, his death means nothing. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 6, we read about victory, where the Bible says, as John looks and John sees the lamb on his throne, he says, I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. The victorious lamb risen from the grave Sitting upon his throne, the Bible tells us gives victory to his saints. We've talked about the sacrificial lamb. We've talked about the resurrected lamb. All that's left now is to talk about the victorious lamb. The victory that he has and the victory that he gives next Sunday morning. Now we offer the Lord's invitation. And perhaps it's the case that there's someone here this morning that has need to respond Maybe you're outside of Christ Jesus and you've not yet been washed in the blood of our Lord. Know that God's desire is for all people to come to repentance and a knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And that God has outlined a plan that all people must obey in order to be washed in the blood of Christ and to be added to his body. The Bible says that we must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John 8 and Verse 24. The Bible says that we must repent of our sins, Acts 3 and verse 19. That we must confess our faith in Christ, Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. And that we must be immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins, Acts 22 and verse number 16. And if we're willing to do that, then the Bible tells us that God will add us to the church, the body and the kingdom of Christ, Acts 2 and verse 47, over which he is head and king and ruler. If you're a Christian this morning and maybe you've not been living your life in recognition of the greatness of the blessing that comes as a result of the risen Lamb, then we urge you to make that right. The invitation song is sung and the invitation is offered. Please come and let your need be known while we stand and sing together.